So we're in this series called Family Dynamics. And what we realize when we study the Word of God is that the church is actually the family of God. It's not just an event. It's not just even a normal community, but it's something more than that. It's actually a family. Now you say, I don't know that I've ever experienced that. Exactly. Because lots of times in our modern American Christianity, the church has lost, I believe, the original intent, which was to be the family of God. In fact, we see again and again Jesus talking about redefining what the family is. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have recorded for us an account, and I shared this last week, of when Jesus is told that his mother and his brother have come to visit him. And he says, my mother and my brother, and he points to his disciples, he says, those are my brothers and my mother. And so you see that anyone who does the will of God, Jesus considers to be his family. And so he redefines what family is. And we see this in more than one place in the New Testament. That actually the spiritual family of God in the eyes of Jesus, is a more true family, even than the biological. And so we've been looking at that, and we've been asking, what are the dynamics at work in both biological families, but also in the spiritual family that makes it unique from other types of community? And what we've seen is that it's really good news particularly if you don't have what you would consider a great relationship with your biological family, that that's not the last word for you and the life that you live on earth, that that's not the only family that you'll ever have because the church can be your family. But we've also said this could be bad news because you might have a great family and in some senses you might have neglected your spiritual family, which is the church. And so this is a wake-up call, this series that we've been going through is a wake-up call and it's a reminder that you need to grow in your understanding of what the church is and grow in your relationship with the church as you reorient your mind to see people like Jesus saw them as brothers and sisters, anyone who does the will of the Father in heaven. So, um, (laughs) the long and short of it is this. The family of God on earth, the church, is the everlasting family. So if you cannot find a way to love and get along with the people of God here, you're not probably going to like heaven too much because that's who's going to be there. And so we need to work and learn what it means to be a true spiritual family, learn to love our, our, our spiritual family like we do our biological And so let me just recap some of these dynamics that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. These are what make the family of God different from other groups or communities that we might participate in. Really good families, spiritual or biological, they help us make major life decisions. They listen well, they give solid, godly advice. Good families also are right there for you in the midst of the biggest of life transitions. They are not a part of any one stage of life. They are there throughout. So they become this solid floor no matter what life transition is coming your way. Then we've said good families are united as one in a way that most other communities are not. What you see in the family of God, just probably like you see in your own biological family, is lots of different people with different personalities and different preferences, but for some reason they can be united as one. We've also said that good families are intentional with one another to help each other grow in maturity. It's not enough just to have a baby brother. My job for my baby brother is to help him grow up to be a young man. And eventually, hopefully, a spiritual parent himself, leading others to follow Christ. And then we've said good families love each other enough to discipline one another, to give hard 
truth to adjust life's path because we love them enough to say the hard things. Last week, we talked about good families share and reinvest their experiences with their siblings. And so this is how people grow. Because you've had an experience and you share it with me. I've had an experience, I share it with you. And together we have shared experience that helps us to tackle life's challenges, to see God in any experience, but we do that by investing and sharing our experiences with one another. And finally today we will look at how families uniquely stick together through thick and thin. Families have a type of commitment that most other communities just don't have. And so we'll look at that today. We'll look at this dynamic of what does it mean to be committed to one another through the thick and the thin. And so I actually looked up what thick and thin meant. Like, where did it come from? (laughs) Turns out it's got interesting roots You'll see why that's funny in just a sec here. Thick and thin, actually, it's an old English phrase. One of the older expressions that um, we know about, and it's been maintained through the centuries. It has this figurative meaning, and it actually has not changed its meaning over the years, which is very interesting. In fact, it comes from a time in England when England was predominantly a wooded country. And so they would say of the animals, because there were few roads, they would say of the animals that they would have to make their way through the thicket and the thin wood of the forest. Don't say you never learned anything at church. The thicket and the thin wood of the forest. And so, of course, it's much easier to make it through the thin wood of the forest than the thicket, right? We all know that. We all struggle with the thicket. And so, (laughs) to make it through the thicket and the thin wood means that you must, at all times, be determined to make progress. And this is what good families do, right? Whether it's thicket or the thin wood, we make it through together because we're committed, we're determined, we will not give up no matter how challenging the countryside is. We will continue to move forward. And so when we zoom out a little bit and we look at all these dynamics that we've been talking about, what we see is that this dynamic of commitment through the thick and the thin It actually touches on every other dynamic. In fact, if we do not have the dynamic of commitment in this unique way that families do, we won't have any of the other dynamics, I believe, at play. And here's why. For instance, if we don't have thick and thin commitment, when we get bad bad advice from a family member, we'll bail. But if we have commitment, Even if we get terrible advice and it goes terribly wrong, we won't bail on our family because it's our family. And even in a life transition, if it takes us far away from our family, we don't bail on our family because they're our family. And even if family members become so very different and so very annoying, we don't bail on our family because it's our family. We have this commitment to them. Even when our maturity outpaces our brothers and sisters, we don't bail on our family because it's our family. Even when our family members call us out and they point out areas in our life where we need correction, we don't bail because they're family. And even when our family members share with us or bring really hard experiences that they're going through, we won't bail on them. We'll stick with them in it. Even if we don't know exactly how to help, we'll be right there with them because they're family. See this? How commitment is the thing that keeps the family of God together. And where you don't have commitment, a unique, thick and thin sort of commitment, 
None of these other things will happen. And we won't be anything special. And we won't accomplish any of the things I believe that God has given us to do. We must be committed. Families must be committed through the thick and the thin. It's what makes them special. It gives them this unique, intrinsic ability to be dynamic parts of a person's life. So the question is, what are we going to be as a church? What is Sedaris Church going to be? Is it going to be a thick and thin kind of family? Or will we be something else? So if you've got your finger in the book of Ruth, go ahead and open it back up. And what we see, if you've never read the book of Ruth, it's actually quite a short read, (laughs) just a few pages, you'll see. But the story of Ruth is an amazing story. Naomi is one of the main characters, and she's from Israel. And her and her husband and her boys move to find greener pastures in order to make a living for themselves. And so they move into this area just to the east of Israel into the land of Moab. And what ends up happening is they find land and they begin to work the land. And then Naomi's husband dies. And her sons become married to local women, Moabite women. And then what begins to happen is her sons die. One son dies, then the next son dies. And all Naomi is left with is her two daughter-in-laws, one of which is a young woman named Ruth. And Naomi realizes what has happened, that she has nothing really to offer these daughter-in-laws. And so she urges them to go back to their families to serve their gods. She releases them from the responsibilities that marriage would have put on them. And one of the daughter-in-laws goes and returns home, which would have been the very natural thing to do. Because Naomi can't provide for them, she has really no hope to offer them. But look in verse 16, chapter 1 of Ruth. Ruth's a little different. Strange, you might say. And here's what she says to Naomi after Naomi urges her to go back to her family. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord... Yahweh, which would not have been the God she grew up worshiping. May your Lord, Yahweh, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I get goosebumps reading this. This is amazing, an amazing response. Because Naomi had nothing to offer. She had no more sons to offer to Ruth. And so Ruth is is really giving away any hope she has of her own family, any hope she has of really any material wealth. Ruth is risking everything, everything that she's dreamed of, to stay covenantally connected to her mother-in-law. Anybody had a mother-in-law in here? Just saying. Just me and mama-in-law? I got a good mother-in-law and still makes this story very, very powerful. She's risking everything. She very likely, like I said, would not have had her own biological family, not have gotten a husband again, not have had her own children, yet she remains committed. 
What is it that gives her this sense of commitment? This sense of no matter what, I will not leave you because I have covenanted to be by your side. What's crazy, like I said, is that she is not a Hebrew. She did not grow up learning about Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. She did not grow up learning about how God rescued the people from slavery. She did not learn any of this growing up. But in the time from when she married into the family until now, she heard about Yahweh. She heard about the way Yahweh has promised things to His people. And I believe that she took it to heart. That she came to know the God of her husband and her mother-in-law, the God of the Israelites, as the one true God. And she learned from her study of Him that He was a God that never forsaked, that never gave up on His people, no matter what happened. And what's crazy about the story of Ruth is that when we get to the New Testament, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, guess whose name we find in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Ruth. Because she understood what it meant to be committed like God is committed to us. And God blessed her for that. Through her line, the Savior of the world came. Isn't that amazing? She understood family in a way that most people don't understand family. Even in a way that Naomi didn't understand family. And it surprised Naomi. And it surprised probably everyone that they met after. She came with you? And you don't have any sons? And I'll let you read the rest of the story But God actually gives Naomi some of those things that she probably dreamed of and hoped for. A new husband, material security. But before she knew any of that would come, she chose to be committed to her mother-in-law. So let's talk about these dynamics. These dynamics that we see in the life of Ruth these dynamics that we see in her understanding of who God is. And I touched on them there for a second. The first thing that we see is the difference between a covenant and a contract. We see this language of covenant in the Bible over and over again. It's a term that was actually common in the ancient Near East. Oftentimes, um, when we look at extra-biblical or uh, literature that we found outside of the Bible, we see this uh, term covenant used. Oftentimes it was used um, when discussing uh, like war pacts between two kingdoms that would come together, covenant together for some um, other uh, other ends. And so when Moses uh, began to write the first five books of the Bible, um, he uses this word I believe God inspired Moses to use this word to talk about the promises that God makes to his people. You can think of it this way. It's a pact between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of his new people, Israel. And the thing we see is that this word is so specific and and picked by God because it's not like a contract. A contract is, if you do this, then I do that. But covenants were always more serious than that. Covenants are, I promise to do this even if you don't follow through with your end. And the reason why God chooses this word covenant to talk about the way He relates to us is because He will never consider His promises to us, null and void. No matter how much we rebel against our promises, no matter how much we don't hold up our end of the deal, God will never 
break his covenant to us. So it's not a contract. It's something so much deeper than that. It's so much purer than that. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit. And when you translate that into the Greek, or most often when it's translated into the Greek, even when speaking of the Old Testament, berit is usually translated testament. So when we say the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're in fact saying something, the old or the first covenant and the new covenant in Jesus Christ. We also see the word covenant often combined with love. God has covenantal love for us. It's not the same as other kinds of love. It's a special kind of love that only the God of the universe can have for us. Sure, human covenants were often broken in the ancient times, but God is not human. And he chose to show us what a real covenant looks like. This is great news. This means that the God of the universe commits himself to his people through thick and thin. This isn't a wishy-washy sort of a promise. He makes his covenants with us again and again. So if you read the Old Testament, here are some of the covenants you'll find. He makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. He says, I will never wipe out humanity again with the flood. And he almost always gives a sign to his covenant. And he tells Noah, I'll put a bow in the sky. Of course, that's the rainbow. So that every time you see it, you'll remember my promise to you that I'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. Then he gives a covenant to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. The covenant is this. We promise, God promises us, a land for the people of Israel. And he also covenants and promises to make Abraham a great nation. To multiply his offspring. To make him the father of many nations. He promises that he'll bless Abraham. Make him great. And that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. We see that happening ultimately in Jesus Christ. He promises to give Abraham a family and a land that will last forever. And he gives a sign of this covenant, which is circumcision to the Hebrew people. Then there's the Mosaic covenant. And after God has liberated his people from slavery in Egypt... And they're in the wilderness before Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain and God makes a covenant with the people of Israel again, saying, I will make Israel a special possession amongst all the people of the land. I will set them apart as a special kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and I will give them requirements and laws so that people will see that they're special and unique because of who they worship. Yahweh. And then you see when God builds up the kingdom of Israel and he gives them a king, we see him making a covenant with King David. 2 Samuel 7 tells us this, that God establishes his covenant with David, that there will be a lineage of rightful kings that will come through Israel and Judah and extend the covenant of Abraham through the line of David. And of course, we see this in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is, in the line of David, an important element for Jesus' claims to be the true Messiah. So those are some of the big covenants that we see God making in the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament, or the New Covenant, and we see that God does the same thing. And so every week we practice the Lord's table, communion. And we do this because Jesus set this up as a reminder of his covenant with us. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah when he says 
there's coming a day when I will give a new covenant to my people. And so Jesus, we have this recorded for us in Matthew 26. Just before he's arrested and eventually crucified, he's eating dinner with his disciples and he tells them this. It says, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink of it, all you. For this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He says the covenant is in my blood. Why does he say that? Why does the blood become the covenant? I think because it's the perfect example of what covenant is. You cannot put the blood back in. You cannot take the blood back. And so it becomes the clearest, I think, expression of the uniqueness of the covenant system that God makes with us. It's not a contract. Jesus already died. Can't put the blood back. So it lasts forever, no matter how we respond to it. Does that make sense? Because it's a covenant, it's already happened. Jesus has already died. The blood has already been shed. That's not changing. Even if we decide not to respond to it, that doesn't change because that's a covenant that he's made in his blood. He is the thick and thin God that makes covenants with his people. People that bear his name. This is great news. God makes forever commitments to us. Now the other thing that we see about covenants that's so important is that a covenant is a commitment to a shared mission. I think it's what holds covenants together and makes them actually effective in the world. So you saw this even in the ancient Near East when they would make covenants. It was always for a purpose. You didn't just simply make a covenant for no reason. I think I will connect myself to you forever just because there's always a purpose for making a covenant, even in the old days. And of course, God does the same thing. Covenants are always for something greater. That's why we're covenanting together, and that's why God covenants with us, because there's something greater that he's pushing for. And so when God made covenants with his people, Over all those centuries, it was always to accomplish something greater in the world. We are, of course, united to Christ through the covenant of His blood for something greater. Not just for our own benefit, but God has something in mind that can only happen when we covenant together. And so through faith in Jesus, we, of course, make voluntary resolution to trust in Jesus in all circumstances, all scenarios, even when we can't see the advantage of it. Because we've covenanted to God for something greater, and so we must trust Him. We see this with Ruth. Ruth didn't commit to Naomi just because it was for her advantage. She was committed to Naomi Despite the circumstance, circumstance would have told her to run, and Naomi, Naomi gave her the option to leave. But she said, no, we covenanted for something greater, and I can't see what it is now. I cannot see what it is. She had no idea. She's standing in Moab with her mother-in-law, just her and her mother-in-law. She had no idea what would come, but she trusted the covenant that she had made. And of course, now we look back and we see her name written in the genealogy of the Savior of the world and we say, yes, (laughs) there was a purpose, but she couldn't see it. All she knew was that she had made a covenant and that there was something greater that God would do if she was faithful to the commitments that she'd made. Now, how does this relate to the church How does this idea of a covenant as a commitment to a shared mission, how does this relate 
to the church. And to be honest, not all churches are the same. I believe that you'll see some churches that act a lot like institutions. Institutions tend to be held together by rules, regulations, procedures, established patterns. Sometimes those are called traditions. Now these things aren't bad, but institutions are held together by those things. Now some churches act more like movements. And movements are held together by a guided or common purpose. A shared, compelling vision that drives us forward together. In movements, individuals can put this vision ahead or above all of their own interests, all of their own personal comforts, because of the shared purpose. Now to be fair, any good church or good family will have elements, hopefully, of both. You need often, especially as you age, we're of course very young as a church, but as you age, there will be things that become more regulated, there will be patterns that come about, traditions, so we don't avoid those altogether. But if we lose these essential elements of a movement, if we stop having a shared mission, a common purpose, a vision for the future that is greater than it is now, then we just become a cold, maybe dead institution. And you see that, right? You see that all the time. That sometimes the church looks and feels more like an institution than it does like a movement. And Jesus started a movement, not an institution. So we have to have this shared mission. Every covenant that's worth anything has a shared mission, that there's something greater. This is why we've come together. Now the third thing that we see is that sacrifice always seals a covenant. So, karat barit. We see this in the Old Testament when it talks about covenant. Karat barit actually means to cut a covenant. And oftentimes this is the way covenants were talked about in the ancient Near East. And it points to this ancient ritual of cutting an animal when you're forming a treaty or a covenant. So to cut a covenant, right? Just like you cut a check. You cut a covenant by sacrificing an animal to commemorate and seal the deal. And I found these sorts of covenantal commitments to each other, even today, are born in the aftermath of this same sort of thing. Sacrifice. Sacrifice always seals the covenant. So you know that you're in a true relationship in life, a covenantal relationship, when there's some form of sacrifice. So if you climb a mountain together, say you summit Rainier, there's some serious sacrifice that happens, right? And part of what makes the relationship so close is because of the sacrifice, the shared sacrifice that everyone's had. You see this with athletes who have sacrificed time, pleasure, cheeseburgers to accomplish a shared mission. I mean, think about it. Not being able to walk after church to Dick's Hamburgers and not, I mean, that's sacrifice. I stopped sacrificing for athletics long ago. (laughs) So if anybody wants to grab a burger with me after, I would love that. But when you sacrifice together, it's what makes a team so close, right? I mean, I always remember as a basketball player, we always had to practice the morning after Thanksgiving. It was terrible. Because when you're in high school, you eat a lot for Thanksgiving because you're not sure how many more Thanksgivings you'll have. So you eat everything. And then you have to get up at 6 a.m. and show up at the gym and run 17s. That's half back and forth from one sideline to the other 17 times in one minute. And if the biggest kid on your team doesn't make it in a minute, everybody runs again. Brad Vanneman. 
I love you, Brad. I'm going to send you this sermon. Okay. So we'd run again until pretty much everybody's throwing up. But it brought us together, okay? This is the way covenants work. Uh, Parents feel this when you're getting up in the middle of the night for 11 straight months for us, getting up, not sleeping through the night. There's a sacrifice that we've made together, and it draws us closer because we've covenanted to be parents. Soldiers, of course, feel this in a unique way. The sacrifice that soldiers encounter creates a type of bond that many of us have never experienced. And I see it in my friends who are in the armed forces. It's hard to leave almost because they've experienced the type of sacrifice that most of us have never have. Now, the final example I'll share is marriage. If you've ever been to a wedding and you've heard the officiant say, today we're making a covenant between a man and a woman, and if they do it right, they usually say, and God. And the marriage covenant is often used in the Bible to depict what this kind of commitment means. And in marriage, there'll be much mutual sacrifice. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands, sacrifice for your wives like Christ has sacrificed for the church, which means to the point of death. This is what the marriage covenant means. I always tell couples when I do premarital with them, day one after the ceremony, just be aware of this. You're going to sacrifice a lot. You're going to sacrifice your freedom. Your schedule's not your own anymore. You sacrifice your finances. Your bank account's not your own anymore. You're going to sacrifice your space. Your closet's not your own anymore. You're going to sacrifice your bed. Maybe you have a nice king-size bed. That's not your own anymore. Doesn't matter how tall or how short your wife is, she can take up the whole bed. <laughs> You're sacrificing your standards of cleanliness when you get married. Your bathroom sink is not your own anymore. My wife's just cringing right now. You sacrifice your vacationing preferences. You might like to climb mountains. Your wife might like other things. Great Wolf Lodge is a great spot. Now, you'll find this out really fast if you're in a marriage that doesn't do sacrifice. You can't stay connected if there's no sacrifice because there's no covenant. So when you get married, if your new husband or your new wife refuses to sacrifice anything for this new partnership, then you probably and should probably question whether they view marriage as a covenant or a contract. Because sacrifice always seals a covenant. Not so with a contract. You probably should ask them that question before you say, I do. What is marriage to you? A contract or a covenant? Are you in this through the thick and the thin or just the thin? We don't know exactly why Ruth committed in the way that she did to Naomi. We don't know if she had a great officiant who said, do you covenant with this man and this family forever? But she surely can be a picture of this kind of marriage covenant. Ruth chooses to sacrifice everything for her commitment to Naomi. She knew exactly how serious Uh, Naomi knew exactly how serious Ruth took this covenant when she chose to say, I will die where you die. Ruth considered her spiritual family her true family. 
the family that she married into and covenanted with, with Yahweh the God. This became her new spiritual family. Even though she grew up in a different tribe with the different gods, when she came underneath the covenant of Yahweh, this became her new true family. And she sacrificed everything for this covenant. This is the same thing as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered if God considers this covenant with humanity breakable? You say, I'm not sure if God takes this covenant seriously. Just look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered if he'll cut the cord on you if you become unhelpful or annoying? Just look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to look nowhere else but the cross to know how seriously God takes his covenant with you. He did not stop short of sending his son to die to make sure he kept his end of the covenant. He sacrificed everything. God the Son hung from the cross. His hands, his feet, his skull, his side, we're all cut for the covenant. So that grace might be extended to each of us. Because we're his family. Now in the church, here's how covenant will work. It will only work if we commit to each other in ways other than contract. In the fall, we'll start our membership process, hopefully, as, if things go as planned, and we'll actually have a covenant, like a written covenant of these are the things we're promising to one another. We're promising to help each other make big life decisions. We're promising to help each other through the transitions of life. We're pro- promising to be committed to each other even when we get annoying, even when we're different, even when our preferences aren't exactly the same. We're covenanting to discipline each other so that we don't fall into the snares of the enemy. And we'll sign it because that's what we do in our culture. We sign things that we care about, which is just putting our name next to other people's names. You say, like, I don't like signing a paper. That seems dull. Well, if you want to be married in the state of Washington, you still have to sign your name. Even though you stand and you declare your love publicly, you still sign a piece of paper. So it's the way we do it. And we'll do that same thing. As a way of making a declaration to each other. But that's not enough. (laughs) There has to be more. We have to be committed to the shared mission of the church. And the shared mission of Sedaris, our family, is to help the people of Seattle consider Jesus Christ and his gospel of redemptive grace. If you're not committed to that, if that's not what you want to be a part of, then don't covenant. Because it's that shared mission that will keep us together when things get a little bit rocky. Through the thick and the thin. That shared mission. We have to be shared in that common purpose. And then we've got to be sealing our covenant together through sacrifice. You say, I'm on board. These are the things I want to promise. I'm on board for the mission, but I'm not willing to sacrifice. We don't have a covenant because a covenant is sealed by sacrifice. And sacrifice looks like Loving each other enough to maybe it's give up Sunday afternoons to help set up. Maybe it's to give up your home to host a fellowship group. Maybe it's to get together with a a friend from the church during the week because you know they're having a hard week. There's all sorts of ways to sacrifice, but if you're not willing to sacrifice, then I don't think it's a real family because there's no real covenant. In John 13, Jesus, the same... Supper that we talked about here. You know what he does? He takes off his outer cloak. He gets down 
on his knees, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, don't wash me, Lord. I'm not worthy. This is what Jesus says. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Servant leaders, my friends, are the people that inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples, If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus without sacrificing for one another. Without being willing to get down on your knees and wash each other's feet. It's just what it's about. And finally, we must remember in the church when we commit to one another, ultimately this brings glory to God. Not to ourselves, but to God. And not just for His glory, but for the salvation of others who are yet a part of our family. Again, back to John 13. When Jesus says, after He said, you must do this as I have done for you, He says this, They will know you. They will know that you're mine by your love for one another. This is not an add-on point. (laughs) This is the main point. That as we sacrifice for one another on the shared mission, covenanting before God and each other, that because of all of that, the way we love each other will draw people into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because they'll say, I've never seen a community like that. You guys aren't even related by blood. And we say, yeah, we are. The blood of Christ. Wow. Tell me more about this family. I want to be a part of this family. They'll know us by our love, and they'll know Jesus Christ because of our love. What an honor to get to be a part of that mission. This is so important that we learn to covenant and commit to each other in this special way. If we don't fully commit to it, we will never experience the blessings that God has for us. I know a lot of us here at Sedaris, for some reason, do the whole 30. Yeah, I've never done it. I've had one meal. It was actually very good, whole 30. Now here's the deal. I know enough about the Whole30, it's a diet for those you don't know, that if you only do five days of it, not much blessing's going to come. But if you commit to the Whole30, you'll start to feel the benefits of the diet, right? And there's plenty of things like this in life. Or you might not, but here's the deal. When God talks about the church as the family of God, He's not saying for the whole 30 even or for the whole 30 months. This is a long-term commitment and you will not begin to experience the blessings that are attached to this kind of community until you commit to it. You say, like, I'm not experiencing this family thing you're talking about, Dave. I'll say to you, How are you committing to it? You'd be like, well, I've come to church, you know, three times this year, and I just don't feel like it's happening for me. It's the whole year. (laughs) It's week in and week out, and I promise you, you'll begin to experience it, but it comes through the commitment because that's the world God's created, a world that's based on commitment. And you say, like, that's a lot of trust. Yes, that's the point. We must trust our Father in heaven that he has not lied to us, that he has told us this is the way to blessing beyond anything you've experienced, trusting in the way I've designed my family to operate. And it's through covenantal commitment to one another, through the thick and the thin. And when we do that, we experience the blessing and we experience a kind of productivity that is very rare. It's very rare what, we're, what we will be able to accomplish if we commit to each other in this way. 
And the reason we'll be able to do much for the kingdom of God is because we will have much security. Think about a family. We will not wonder, if I mess up in this family, does that mean I get thrown out of the family or people will stop wanting to be in relationship with me? No, because it's a family. And so I can risk for God and I can come back and I know the family's there. There is security in the family of God. In any good family, there is security that allows you to be productive for the things of the Lord. So what is Sedaris Church? Are we a movement and a family? Or are we an institution? Are we thick and thin brothers and sisters? Or are we just people who spent some time together when we were all young adults? My prayer for us, no matter how you might have just answered that question in your head, is that a year from now, you've experienced what it means to commit to one another, and you can say with all sincerity and joy, we are a family here of thick and thin brothers and sisters in Christ with a shared mission, sealed with sacrifice for the glory of God the Father in heaven. Hallowed be his name. Let's pray. Father God, we don't know why you've invited us to be a part of your family. We know that we are not worthy of your grace in our life. We know that we are not worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross to seal the covenant of grace. We know we're not worthy. But let that not keep us from entering into the doors of your home, in your house, serving side by side with your children as thick and thin brothers and sisters of Christ. It's in Jesus' name and only because of his work that we pray. Amen.